Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> we've been out of the Gospel of Luke for a month and a half now, but we've been over the last year and a half or so uh, working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we return to it this morning. We're in Luke chapter 11, and just to kind of remind you where we are in Luke chapter 11, the last time we were in Luke, there was the, the story of Jesus casting out the demon in verse 14, and Some of the Pharisees have a problem with that. Jesus talks to them, and that brings us to verse 24, and we'll talk more about the context as we continue looking at this passage this morning. But right now, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of God as we read his word, if you're able to. Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus is speaking here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You may be seated, may be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. And let's pray again before we begin. And Father, we thank you for this this passage that, that tells us more about you more about your character, about how we are to respond to you. Give us your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My confidence this morning is that each person here who would say that they're a believer, who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, my my confidence would be that, that each of you who would affirm to be a believer who's actually become a believer would say that you have a desire to have victory over sin. That doesn't mean you necessarily always have victory over sin, but my confidence would be that for every person who has genuinely placed their faith in Jesus Christ and had their heart transformed by the gospel, my confidence would be at the core of who you are, at your new nature, you would have a desire to have victory over sin. To not succumb to the temptations of sin, that would be my confidence for believers this morning. What I want to do, I want to share a passage with you. In fact, keep your finger there in Luke chapter 11 and turn over a couple books uh, to Colossians chapter 2. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then you'll find Colossians as you flip through the New Testament there. And in Colossians chapter 2, we encounter a passage that I believe is foundational for rightly understanding how one can have victory over sin. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is going to lay out two paths. He's going to say this one path allows a person, as they pursue it, to achieve victory over sin, and this other path, although it looks like it would be effective, although it looks like it might help us in our struggle against sin, is actually going to fail utterly in providing us victory over the flesh. Look at these two paths that Paul describes in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. 
Same idea we saw in Galatians. Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Jesus Christ? You received Christ through faith. Seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So path one to pursuing righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. And just as you began your relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says, continue along that path of pursuing God through faith in Jesus Christ. However, Paul's going to let us know, some are tempted to follow a different path, and he lays that path out for us beginning in verse 8, and he goes on through the end of the chapter. In fact, look at verse 20. He kind of sums up this other path that people take to pursuing righteousness. Verse 20 of Colossians 2, Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Regulations like, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These refer to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and and teachings. And then verse 23 These, that is these man-made regulations, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but, and here's the kicker, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says, look, there is going to be some things, some regulations, some some requirements, a code of conduct that, that people are going to encourage you to follow. And these look very useful. They have kind of man made wisdom, but really this is self made religion. And as you follow this second path of this man made religion, this moral moralism, this moralistic living, you're going to find something terrible. It is of no value. It is absolutely useless and actually fighting the flesh. And what I would be very confident in assessing this morning and stating this morning is that there are many of us who are struggling with sin and feel as though though sin has a a stronghold in our lives, a foothold in our lives that that we're unable to to rid ourselves of. And many of us have been pursuing a moralistic lifestyle, saying, I'm going to follow this this code of conduct, this certain type of teaching, and live in this way. And as as I do that, perhaps I'll have victory over sin, and we found that it's absolutely useless in fighting our flesh. And so what I want to encourage you with this morning is to pursue Jesus Christ and find the infinite value of Jesus Christ in all things, including in your battle with sin. Now, obviously, as we talk about moralism this morning, it can be a little bit confusing. And I don't want you to go home and, and someone in your family ask you, you know, what did, what did Daniel talk about this morning? And say, I think he's against morals. You know? I, th- I think he said, uh, don't be moral. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying, right? In fact, as a person pursues Jesus Christ, the, uh, the fruit is going to be a very moral lifestyle. What I'm speaking against this morning is moralism. The belief that I can change who I am by changing the way I act. 
the belief that as I, I pursue a certain code of conduct, I can change who I am. That's what is deadly to your spiritual health. Let me remind you where we are in Luke chapter 11. Kind of this, this passage begins really in verse 14. Jesus was casting out a demon. And as he was casting out a demon, he runs into opposition with some people. We know from other texts, he really runs into opposition with the, the Pharisees, the scribes. And as he runs into opposition, there's an accusation leveled against Jesus. As he's casting out the demons, these, these uh, Pharisees and other people say, look, the reason you're so effective in your demon casting out is because you are actually in league with Satan. Satan's allowing you to do this. And Jesus says, really? And Jesus says, look, let's think about this logically, okay? Here are two options. Option number one, yeah, I'm in league with Satan. And Satan is fighting against his own kingdom. He says, that's ludicrous. No kingdom that's divided against itself will stand. But if that's true, then yeah, I'd be in league with Satan. But obviously that's not true. So option number two is that I'm establishing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And if the kingdom of God has come upon you, you better get in line with me. In fact, the last verse before the, the passage we're looking at this morning is in verse 23. <clears throat> and Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, I am the central person that one must respond to when one is thinking about the kingdom of God. And I believe in the following verses that we're looking at this morning, what Jesus is doing is he's using as an illustration what's just happened, an exorcism, a, casting a demon out of its ability to influence this person. He's, he's just performed that. And I believe he's using that as an illustration to describe the centrality of placing one's faith in Christ and not pursuing a moralistic, legalistic, pharisaical lifestyle that the Pharisees would have had a person pursue. And so as we unpack this passage together, what I, get, what I hope you get is the central theme of this passage that we're looking at is that moralism brings destruction and misery. The gospel brings blessing. Let me say that again. Moralism Moralism, the belief that one can change who one is by changing how one acts, moralism brings misery. The gospel brings blessing. We're going to look at four truths that help us understand that as we go through the text. The first truth is this. Moralism is effective for a time. Truth number one, as we think about the relationship between moralism and the gospel, moralism is effective for a time. Look again at verse 24, the first part of verse 24. <clears throat> Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, remember again, he's talking about the context of what's just happened. And he's acknowledging that, in fact, let me point you back to verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus acknowledges that these people that are criticizing him have people that are also engaging in work of trying to rid people from the influence of demons. And Jesus is saying that their ministry may be effective for a time. 
As they tell a person, look, I'm going to get this demonic influence out of your life, and they, they say some things, and, and along with what they would say, these, these Pharisees would call on this person that they're, they're talking to to live a certain way, to follow the Jewish laws, the Jewish regulations, the Jewish oral traditions, and, and live this moral, clean lifestyle. In fact, later in the passage, he's going to talk about this person's heart being like this nice, clean room that, that looks nice. So Jesus is saying, look, you are effective for a moment in time. This moralism does allow the, the evil spirit to leave perhaps for a moment of time, and a person who pursues a moralistic lifestyle may find that it's effective for a time. But you know what moralism assumes? Moralism assumes something about the human condition, about the human heart. There's a theory of the, the human condition and the human heart that informs moralism. This theory of the human condition that moralism bases its work on says that essentially we're neither good nor bad. The, universe, uh, the Unitarian Church would teach a, a person is morally neutral. They're not necessarily good or bad. Secular humanism would say that a person isn't good or bad. They're kind of morally neutral. In fact, there's a, a quote that I think sums this up very well by a man named uh, Corliss Lamont, who was a secular humanist. Listen to what Lamont says. He says, What the scientific study of human motives shows is that human nature is neither essentially bad nor essentially good, neither essentially selfish nor essentially unselfish, neither essentially warlike nor essentially peaceful. Uh, human nature is essentially, he says, flexible and educatable. He says that he rejects the idea that one can't change human behavior. And so that philosophy is, is what undergirds a lot of moralism, a theory of the human condition that one is neither morally good nor morally bad. One must be educated to be good or bad. Let me give you some examples of moralism, okay? Now, as I give these examples, some of them may step on some toes, okay? And so please, again, understand, I'm not saying that some of these things are necessarily bad to do. I'm saying if, if this is the basis upon which, what, upon which one thinks one's going to live a moralistic lifestyle, you need to understand that's moralistic thinking, that's moralism. Let me give you one example. When I was a youth pastor at Bethany Baptist Church, there was one time I saw this, this young lady was carrying a backpack and she kind of put it down. It had these, these, I think it was like X's all over it. And I wasn't sure what that meant. I was like, well, maybe she's like really into tic-tac-toe but can't do circles. I'm not sure. And so I asked her, I said, hey, uh, why do you have all these, these, what's this, I think it was an X. What's, what's this X mean? She goes, oh, man, I'm straight edge. I said, what? You're kind of oval to me. I don't know. I'm a straight edge because that's like this, this uh, kind of this, this punk code of conduct. And I was like, what, um, what do you do? She says, nothing. You know, we don't do this. We don't do that. We don't drink. We don't smoke. We don't do drugs. I'm so, well, hey, that's great things not to do. But is, is that the focus? That's moralism, right? I'm going to have this code of conduct, and, and this is the code of conduct that I'm going to follow. Now, straight edge is effective for a time. People that say, I'm going to live a straight-edge lifestyle for a time can have victory over certain aspects of their flesh. 
I was talking to a family that's involved in Boy Scouts, and they were talking about the, the moralism of, of Boy Scouts. And there's kind of a, the scout oath that you take, right? On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and obey the scout law to help other people at all times. I'll keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, morally straight. If that's what one is basing one hope of, of living a right way on is, is taking a scout oath, that's moralism, isn't it? A lot of preaching is moralistic. As we come to the Old Testament, sometimes as you hear people teach children's Bible studies, you see they're not necessarily pointing them to Jesus Christ, they're pointing them to moral behavior. The story of David, what's that about? That's about being brave. The story of, of the widow, what's that about? Be a generous person as you give. Nehemiah is about be really organized. Jonah, don't Go swim in the ocean after eating. I don't know. I'm not sure what that's about. <laughs> Watch your water bottle. Be careful with water. Uh, that's the message of Jonah. You see what? Moralistic preaching. Uh, purity rings, okay? Is it, is it bad to have a purity ring? Absolutely not. But if, one, if you're hoping that you're going to behave in a moral way and not live in a moral lifestyle because you wear some ring around your finger, you've made some promise, that's moralism. Not wrong to do, but if that's what you're basing your confidence in being morally pure on, that's moralism. And it's going to work for a time and in certain areas. Moralism is effective for a time, but let's look at the second principle. Moralism ultimately fails. Following a code of conduct will cause you to behave in a certain way for a certain amount of time, but ultimately moralism fails. Look what happens next. This illustration that Jesus is giving. The spirit, he says, it goes out of a person and it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And the idea there is a, a picture that was common in, in Scripture of, of a demon enjoying these, these lifeless places that are both lifeless symbolically and literally. But then the demon, as it, as it travels through these lifeless places, says, you know what? I'm going to return to my house from which I came. I'm going to go back and continue to influence that, that person that I left. Jesus says in verse 25, it comes and it finds a morally neat lifestyle. It finds this house that the human heart swept and put in order. But empty, right? Look at, remember the context. Can you remember back six weeks ago? Remember what Jesus said in verse 25, oh, sorry, verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says that when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Who's in this heart? The demon has left, it comes back, it finds this morally nice lifestyle, this neat, clean house put in order, and yet what does it not find? It doesn't find a, a strong man. It doesn't find the indwelling presence of God. It doesn't find the strongest man, Jesus Christ. It simply finds morality. And moralism ultimately fails. It goes, it finds this house, put in order, and then it goes and it brings seven other spirits, more evil in itself. And I think Jesus is just giving the idea there that, that this, this uh, influence becomes even greater than it was before. 
and it comes in and they enter and dwell there. Ultimately, moralism is going to fail. I think this picture here is similar to something we see in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, Paul tells us to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. I believe that for the moralist, the person who's subscribed to the, the theory of moralism, they're going to find that it's effective for a period of time. But then there's going to be that, that evil day that day of testing. And suddenly, in that time of great temptation, moralism isn't enough. Conditions align in just a certain way, and maybe you've made a promise, I'm not going to get angry anymore, and and you even have this little rubber band around your wrist, and every time I get angry, I'm going to flick myself with a rubber band, and I'm going to make these promises, and I'm going to guarantee no more angry Daniel. And then all of a sudden, uh, I do well for the first day, and I do well for the second day, but then there's that day of testing, that, that day of, of intense time. It's like, it's like uh, the, the, the full might of the enemy against me and my flesh, and uh, you know, it starts off at home, things don't go very well, and then it, you know, the people at work that are usually very nice uh, are really mean to me that day, and then I get in the car, and some clown cuts me off, and you know, it just goes on and on and on. Fine, I'm just angry. Moralism wasn't enough to change the heart. Moralism ultimately fails. We see moralistic people and failing in Scripture in several examples. For example, in, in a few chapters over in Luke 18, we see the failure of moralism. The Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus says in Luke 18, come and they, they pray to God. And listen to what the Pharisee says. The, for, the Pharisee is moralism personified. In verse 11, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I am a moral person. But what happens? Moralism ultimately fails. Jesus says that the Pharisee doesn't receive the righteousness of God. He's not justified. A few verses later, we see the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, look, you know, the ten, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, murder, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this moralistic young man says what? All these I have kept from my youth. I'm moral. Jesus grieves for this young man because he hasn't understood the good news of Christ and is pursuing a moralistic lifestyle. Moralism ultimately is a failure. Third principle is this. Material, uh, moralism, moralism brings misery. Moralism brings misery. The last state of the person, Jesus says at the end of verse 26, is worse than the first. As this person has been 
pursuing the righteousness that he needs or she needs instead of pursuing Jesus Christ and the, the means through which God has said that a person can obtain righteousness. This person has been pursuing moralism and the end result of moralism is misery because you're trying to pursue something in a way that God says not to pursue it. And when the moralist fails, there's nothing else to fall back on. There's no more morality that one can, can fall back on. One can't make more rules about not lying. One made one rule about not lying. One told a lie. There's no more moralism left. You see how that's different than the gospel, right? You're kind of giving you a, a little bit of foreshadowing here. There's no more moralism left. Moralism brings misery. And why does moralism bring misery? Because it was based upon a faulty understanding of the human condition. Have you ever done those uh, Sudoku puzzles, you know? There's all these, these numbers, and you're trying to figure out what numbers fit in the right boxes, and, and every box has to have the right number, or ultimately the, the puzzle is going to be off, and you're going to get into the puzzle, and you realize, oh, man, I made a mistake somewhere. That's why I don't do Sudoku puzzles, actually. Very frustrating. You get to the end, and you realize, somewhere along the line, I made some faulty assumption, and now I've got to race this whole thing and figure out where I made the mistake. As we think about moralism and its failure, we have to go back and say, what was the faulty assumption here? I, I, I said I don't want to lie. I made a rule about not lying, and, and, and yet I lied. I didn't want to view this, uh, this, these uh, images that aren't honoring to God. I, I made a rule that I wasn't going to do it, and then I did it anyway. What, what was wrong? What was wrong about moralism is its faulty understanding of human nature. Remember what we said, the moralist believes? The person who's a moralist says, my behavior uh, can change based on the rules that I make. I can change who I am based upon the ch way that I act, changing the way I act. That's moralism. That's a faulty understanding of sin. It's a faulty understanding of the human condition. Let me give you five truths here as we think about moralism bringing misery. Five truths about sin and the human condition. Begin uh, before I get to those. Let me just give a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. As he's talking about the human condition. He says this: If only there were evil people somewhere, insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. In other words, he says, if we're talking about evil, wouldn't it be nice if evil just existed with some people and we could find those some people and say, no more of you, and now evil is done with. He says, no, that's not the way evil is. The dividing line, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Truth number one about sin Truth number one, you, me, everyone we know are sinners. You, me, everyone we know are, are sinners. Genesis 8, 21, God says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In fact, let me say one thing about being a sinner. I think sometimes we misunderstand what sin is. We have a, a misunderstanding about the nature of, of the law of sin, it's like a guy that's pulled over for speeding. And the officer says, um, look, the speed limit here is 55, 
and, and you were doing 66 miles an hour, I'm, I'm going to have to give you a ticket. And the man says, oh, uh, thank you, officer. Now I know. The speed limit is 55 miles an hour. I am not going to vary from 55 miles an hour. I'm not going to go 56 miles an hour. I'm not going to go 54 miles an hour. I'm going to go 55 miles an hour. And the man proceeds to do that on the highway, through his neighborhood, through school zones, in a Kroger parking lot. He's going 55 miles an hour. He's chosen one law, and boy, he's going to get that law down. That's moralism. That's not the nature of sin, though, is it? Sin is more than just one law. In fact, sin is more than just memorizing a whole bunch of laws. A person could say, I'm going to memorize all the speed limits, all the city ordinances, all the federal laws and state laws. I'm going to memorize all laws and walk around super obedient. That's not how sin works either, is it? Sin isn't just a bunch of laws that we have to obey or, or not obey, depending upon do or don't do. That's not the definition of sin. Sin is opposition to the character of God himself. And you, me, and everyone we know is a sinner in the sense that we act in a way that's a violation of God's holy character. God isn't holy simply because he just obeys a bunch of laws. God is holy because he's holiness itself. You see why moralism doesn't work? Moralism is pursuing a bunch of codes. The gospel is something different. Moralism brings misery, first of all, because it doesn't understand that each of us are sinners. Secondly, not only are we we sinners, the second truth here under moralism brings misery, so we're thinking about the nature of sin, sin permeates who we are. Sin permeates who we are. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are are desperately wicked. I can't just compartmentalize part of my sin. I can't say, you know, my elbow is really sinful. Therefore, I'm going to walk around and not use this elbow, and I'll be able to achieve victory over sin. That's the moralism that people follow. It's not effective in fighting the flesh because every component of us, thoughts, minds, hearts, has been affected by our fallen nature. Sin, everyone you know is a sinner. Sin permeates who we are. The third truth that I think is important to consider here as we think about sin is that sin is is inescapable on our own. On our own, sin is inescapable. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The fourth truth about sin is that, that sin is deceptive. It's so tricky. The moralist, as he or she follows a moralistic path, thinks that they're achieving God's righteousness, and yet even as they're achieving God's righteousness, perhaps in one area, doing one thing right, there's eight others they're failing in, right? Moralism fails to understand that sin is deceptive. I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but there's a book that came out by Bill Bennett, who had been in the education czar, I don't know if you remember him, during the the Reagan administration, and, and he wrote a book called The Book of Virtues, and the Book of Virtues was a book that, that talked about different, different attributes and, and some great stories in there and encouraged people to kind of return to this moralistic lifestyle. Great book. I, I, I believe we have it or, or uh, we've read parts of it to our kids and, and there's some, some neat stories in there. But what happened with Bill Bennett, right? Bill Bennett, moralist, but Bill Bennett ultimately had a, a struggle with, with gambling, and didn't acknowledge that gambling itself was, was not a, a good activity for me be involved. He lost millions of dollars through gambling. But he said, look, I'm being moral. My family's not in danger. I'm still a hard worker. 
Moralism doesn't understand that sin is so deceptive. And if we pursue moralism in eight areas, there's 64 that we're failing in, 64,000 that we're failing in. Another thing that we need to understand about sin, not only is it deceptive, but it results in death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. My fear is that this is where many of you are this morning. Many of you have been pursuing moralism. There's an area of your life that you've struggled with in very profound ways. It's it's an area of, of morality. It's an area of integrity. It's an area of discipline. And you've been pursuing moralism, and you've found that it's ultimately completely ineffective in combating your flesh in this area. As an aside here, we've talked about this before, but, but parents, as you think about the nature of your instruction with your children, many of you are proclaiming and teaching moralism to them. Hey, in our house, we don't do this. We do this. We don't do this. We do this. These are the rules. This is what you follow. We're a moral family. Moralism's effective for a time, but ultimately it fails, and when it fails, it brings misery because it's a person pursuing God's grace apart from the means that he's ordained for them to find his grace, and that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That brings up the fourth truth that we need to understand, and that's that the gospel brings blessing. Here's, remember the scene, Jesus has just finished saying these words, and he's ended on this really optimistic note. Oh, and by the way, the last state of the person is worse than the first. And everyone's like, whoa. Crickets, you know. And then one lady shouts out. What does she shout? She says, hey, blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast at which you nursed. In other words, blessed be your mother because she's produced such a, a great teacher. And she's kind of, I think, trying to say, no, we're with you, Jesus, we're with you. And Jesus lovingly offers her this correction. He said, uh, actually, blessed rather, are you ready for it? Blessed rather are those who hear God's word and obey it. This is a message that Jesus preaches throughout the Gospel of Luke, throughout his proclamation of the Gospel, that a person needs to hear him and respond to him and be obedient to him. A person receives God's blessing not through the pursuit of moralism, not through the laws of the Pharisees, but a person finds blessing in the word of God, in Jesus Christ, and obedience to him by faith. The gospel is the basis upon which a person receives blessing. Now you say, okay, Daniel, I've accepted the gospel, and yet I still struggle with sin. Here's the difference for the person who's responded rightly to the gospel. The person who's responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ finds Jesus Christ an inexhaustible well of grace, that allows a person to continue in sanctification. And that's why as an individual, as you seek Jesus Christ, you continue to find the grace, the living water to pursue in righteousness. Let me give you 
four truths here about the believer's new relationship to sin because I think this is such an important point. Certainly an important thing for me as I think about the reality of my own sanctification and my desire to grow in God's righteousness. The first thing I want you to understand is this. The believer has experienced victory over sin. The believer has experienced victory over sin through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as they appropriate that through faith, they have achieved victory over sin. Romans 6, chapter 1, Paul says, We've, we, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Verse 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Colossians chapter 3 is a great passage to memorize as you're thinking about your own sanctification. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The believer has achieved a true victory over sin. Secondly, Secondly, we have to acknowledge that sin still resides within us. We have a new nature, and yet we're still in the flesh, and still, sin still resides within us, and there's a temptation to yield to it. You can write down Romans chapter 7. I encourage you to read through that on your own and, and see the wrestling that Paul has with this reality that sin still lives within him. Thirdly, sin never rests. It's still deceptive, and that law of sin working within us still continues to challenge us. But fourthly, fourthly, this is key, for the believer, for the person who's placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ, the believer desires and continues to persevere in their walk with Jesus Christ, continues to pursue victory over sin. When I first became a youth pastor, I looked out at the behavior of the, the students in the youth group and I saw lots of sin that they were struggling with. I, I saw they spent too much time on TV. I saw that there were gossips. I saw that there was some immorality. I, I saw all these sins. And so what did I do? I preached moralistic sermons to them. Hey guys, don't watch TV. Hey guys, uh, don't lie to your parents. Res, you know, respect your parents. Do this, this, and this to show them that you're respecting them. What I failed to do as strong as I needed to was to proclaim Jesus Christ to them. We can produce moral children. We can produce morality in ourselves. And it will be effective for a time, but it's ultimately going to fail. As it fails, it's going to bring misery. The answer is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And giving people not rules, but the priceless treasure of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We pray that we would experience his indwelling power within us as we place our trust and faith in him alone through your grace. We pray this in his name. Amen.